Welcome to the Walkworthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Ben, I want to thank you for your leadership this morning, along with everyone else, and especially for your encouragement that we would introduce that song to our congregation. Appreciate your sensitivity, brother, to the comments that uh, have been made pastorally and the prayers that have been made about what people are walking through these days. And so thank you for pointing us to a song that gives language for us to sing to God and also language for us to just to sing so that other people can hear it even when they might not be able to themselves. So we will continue to sing it in subsequent weeks so we learn it well because the main instrument is the voices of God's people and we want to make sure that uh, they are carrying the day. So thank you again, brother, for that. A week ago Friday, Meredith and I enjoyed an evening in a way that we hadn't in some time. We had dinner with friends without any of our kids present. Having 11 kids between our two households, the other family wins, we've got four, they have seven, it means pretty much all the time that we've ever spent together has come with the normal conversation interruptions that parents just come to expect. But not this time. This time we actually went to a restaurant, and apparently because of how rare this occurrence was, we were almost the last ones to leave after spending almost four hours there. Also because of how rare this is, Mary and I looked ahead at the menu, so through the day we could anticipate the selection that we would make. When we arrived at the restaurant, we found out our friends had done the exact same thing. Apparently, we all wanted to savor every uninterrupted, delicious moment. In God's kindness, we enjoyed that evening immensely, and I, for one, left full. I, felt, I left physically full from the meal that I enjoyed due to the misplaced piece of glass and Meredith's last bite of her meal. We all enjoyed free dessert from a very apologetic restaurant that satisfied everyone's sweet tooth. Relationally, we were full as well as we talked and laughed together, and there was also spiritual encouragement that came from being in the company of a brother and sister in the Lord. So in more ways than one, we left that evening full. It was very life-giving. And this got me thinking, do I come to the gospel meal that we're going to eat this morning with the same level of anticipation? Do I look ahead to the menu of the Lord's Supper to whet my appetite, to savor ahead of time the menu items that make this meal the spiritual feast that it is? Do I come, do we come, expectant, that this means of grace will satisfy, will nourish, will strengthen, will sustain. I need help with this. And I believe we all do, which is why we're continuing to pause our sermon series in 2023 to focus on the Lord's table in the sermon when we gather on the Sundays we do to eat this gospel meal. What I believe will help me and you is to come expectant 
that eating this gospel meal fills us with gospel hope. Eating the bread, drinking the cup at the Lord's table is designed to fill our eyes, our ears, our hands, our mouths, our hearts, our minds, our souls with the accomplishments of Jesus' death. And he is the hope of the world. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the resurrection. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All that God has done for us in and through him is at the center of this meal. And by previewing the items on the menu of this gospel meal, we'll better anticipate and appreciate how it is that eating this gospel meal fills us with gospel hope. And if the song that we've just sung is any indication, hope is what we greatly and desperately need. So turn with me to Matthew 26. It's page 832 in the Blue Bibles. Matthew 26, a few verses of the institution of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew 26, 26 to 29. We're going to read these and meditate our way through them so that together we might look ahead at the menu, so that we might consider the items that make up this gospel meal before we eat and drink together. So Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. Let me pray before we read God's word again together. Lord, as the psalmist of old asked, And I would echo this morning for my own sake and for the sake of all who are gathered here. Give us life according to your steadfast love, the fullest and greatest display of which we reflect on this morning in the death of your Son on the cross. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and in this your love is manifest. And at the same time, as the psalmist prayed, Lord, give us life according to your word as we come now to read it, to hear it, and with the help of your Spirit, I pray that it would be proclaimed and that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to each of us. And should there be any among us this morning, Lord, who are not yet Christians, thank you that they are here. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be bold and clear in explaining to them the way of Christ and the good news of the gospel, that they too might have Christ, who is the hope of the world. And this we ask together in his name, and all God's people say, amen. Matthew 26, beginning of verse 26, says as follows. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread... And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples, to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as Matthew indicates, 
Jesus initiates this new covenant gospel meal during the final legitimate observance of an old covenant meal. Everything that happens in the short verses we read happened in the context of them eating on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, which raises the question, what was it that they were eating? Verse 17 tells us a little bit earlier in the chapter that they were eating the Passover, which many Jews still observe to this day, not believing, sadly, that Jesus is the Messiah who has come. At this time, they were eating as instructed by God to remember His mighty, miraculous deliverance in the Exodus. And as we're learning in our current sermon series, God stretches out His hand to rescue a people from serving a tyrant serpent king so that they might serve Yahweh instead, the one true and living, living covenant creator of heaven and earth. So they're eating this meal, and Jesus tells us elsewhere that he was eager to eat this meal with them. So as they're commemorating the lamb that was slain back in Egypt and the blood on the doorposts that spared them from the judgment of the angel of death, in the middle of this meal, Jesus redirects attention from that exodus to the greater exodus that is unfolding before the disciples' very eyes. So in the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus initiates a new meal, a gospel meal, with his death and his deliverance as the focus. The first item on this new covenant meal menu, this gospel meal, is bread. Eating this menu item of the gospel meal fills us with the hope of Christ's atoning sacrifice. The hope of his substitutionary death, of a lamb in our place dying. Eating the gospel meal fills us with gospel hope. First, as we consider the bread, the hope of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Now, as they were eating, Matthew writes, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, as we read, read in verse 26. Jesus, who is Lord of heaven and earth, who is Lord of the Passover, is Lord at this table. He is the host. We are the guests. After giving thanks to God for the bread, he breaks it, surely as a visible expression of the violent death that he would soon undergo. In the breaking of the bread, we are reminded of him bearing our sins in his body on the tree. In the giving of the bread, we are reminded that he did this for us, he gave his body up unto death, even death on a cross as a sacrifice in our place. And the command to eat, which has a sense of urgency, take it now, eat. We are reminded of the nourishment that Christ is to us, not physically, but spiritually. When Jesus says that the bread is his body, he doesn't mean that the bread actually becomes his body as Roman Catholics would teach about the Lord's Supper. Is means, represents, or stands for, or points to, or symbolizes. There's no way in this initiation of the Lord's Supper that the disciples would have understood that the bread Jesus was holding in his hand was actually his body when his body was the one holding the bread. Likewise, there's no way we should understand that what happens in a 
Roman Catholic Mass is the bread and wine actually becoming Jesus' body and blood when the risen Jesus has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. His body and blood are not found in any of the Roman Catholic Church buildings you drove past to get here this morning. He's, I quote, up there, as reformers Zwingli and Calvin rightly argued. Just as Jesus is not literally a door or a vine, the bread is not and does not literally become his body. And the same could be said for the Lutheran view that Christ is really present in and with and under the elements. His physical body is not present in any physical way in this gospel meal. Rather, while present with us by his Spirit and while eating by faith the bread, we are nevertheless filled with hope as we are nourished as we come to the table of this gospel meal. The bread that we are about to eat reminds us and represents to us that a lamb has been slain, that the lamb has been slain, and since the lamb has died, God's wrath is satisfied. So every time, church, that we eat the bread that we're about to, Jesus wants us to be assured that he has died in our place, that there's no condemnation for us any longer, that his suffering once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, has brought us to God, that Jesus has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, as Paul writes. Every time we hold this bread in our hands and we eat of it, it is assurance to us that we have died with Christ, so our lives are now hidden with Christ and God, and that we have been crucified with Christ, so that it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. The life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, Paul also wrote, who loved us and gave himself for us. Every time... We take this bread and we give thanks to God and we eat of it together. It's assurance that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God every time. We come around this table. This is what our Lord Jesus wants us to know. One of my favorite ways I've heard this put is through a story called Penelope Judd. I'm sure some of you have heard me reference it before. It's a song. It's not a book. And I want to share part of it with you this morning, partly because boys and girls who are in the service today, I think you'll like it. And I think the grown-ups will like it too. It goes like this. I'm going to tell you some. I'm going to fast forward a little bit, and I'll tell you the end. And it rhymes, which I just like. So, Once upon a time, in a distant land, far beyond the sea where there lived no man, or woman, in fact, lo and behold, the oldest person there was only 12 years old. Because all the grown-ups had washed away in a flood, one town in particular there was called mud, because every sister, cousin, and brother, from head to toe in mud, they were covered. But anyway, in this town called mud, there lived a little girl named Penelope Judd. 
Now, Penelope was a very sad, sad girl because she was living in a bad, bad world where kids teased each other and acted really mean. They lied, cheated, and stole, and their speech was obscene. With no grown-ups around, nobody was really wise, so every kid did what was right in their own eyes. Penelope would cry every single day. No matter what she did, the tears wouldn't go away, but deep down in her heart, she hoped it would get better because of what her grandpa had written in a letter. He said, Penelope, it's great news that I bring. On the mountaintop, there lives a great king. The king has a son, and being a proud father, he's going to throw the prince a huge party in his honor. But the good part, and I hope this gets you excited, Penelope Judd, you're officially invited. He's sending a dove. He'll tell you all you need to know. Just have your bags packed and be ready to go. Now, fast forwarding a little bit, eventually the Dove arrives, and Penelope makes the difficult trip to the foot of the mountain and up the mountain and through the darkness, and the dove is there to help her every time she slips. And though Penelope gets scared, finally the dove led her to the palace and said, farewell, see you inside. He flew away. Penelope rang the bell. A huge angel answered. He looked her up and down. She knew something was wrong because he had a big frown. Can I help you, ma'am? Yes, I'm here for the party. I have an invitation, he said. I'm so sorry. There's no way I can let you through these doors. The king won't let anyone dirty up his floors. She didn't understand. So without coming near her, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a mirror. And for the very first time, she saw that she was dirty. The palace was spotless. She knew she was unworthy. As the angel continued, I'm sorry, little friend, but a voice inside the party said, you can let her in. The next thing she knew, the prince himself was at the door. He looked at her, smiled, and said, there's room for one more. He reached out and touched her. Instantly, she was clean wearing the brightest robe she had ever seen. If the mud kids had seen it, they would have gone blind. Where did you get it? She asked. This is my favorite part. He said, actually, it's mine. And as he led her in through the palace doors, he sang the sweetest song she had ever heard before. He said, long ago, I laid aside my crown. Became a mud kid, traveled to your town. They kicked me out. They didn't want me around. But those who love me get to share my crown. Jesus added a human nature to his divine nature. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserved to die, his body in our place. And he offers to us his righteousness in exchange for our sin to bring us to God himself. And when we take the bread in our hands and we hear Jesus' word, this is my body which is for you It represents to us all that Jesus has accomplished for us in his death on the cross. 
And this fills us with tremendous hope. Now consider the second item on the menu of this gospel meal that fills us with hope when we partake. Eating the gospel meal fills us with gospel hope, the hope of Christ's covenant-securing blood. The hope of Christ's covenant-securing blood. The passage goes on, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, to get at the meaning of these verses, I actually want to start at the end and work backwards to understand why what Jesus says here is the greatest news in all the world, we must first begin with the bad news. Before we understand the wonder of the forgiveness of sins, we must be first clear on what sin actually is. And I don't want to assume that everybody always knows what that word means. The Bible uses different words to paint the bleak picture of what sin is. One word the Bible uses is transgression which I quote, is a willful, knowledgeable violation of a norm or standard. Boys and girls, think of it this way. Picture a raised fist in the face of God saying, I don't want to do what you say. Another word the Bible uses is iniquity, which means religious guilt or crime that results in guilt. You can picture it of Maybe taking a wire coat hanger and you bend that, and you can't straighten that out again. And that something is God's pure, perfect, holy law and word. Another word the Bible uses is simply sin, which means to miss the mark or to fall short. Imagine, boys and girls, jumping up to reach a bar that is so high above you and then being disqualified because you can't touch it. Or shooting an arrow at a target and you miss the center. And God's standard is that your whole life you can't miss the mark even once. And the Bible tells us that all of us are guilty of raising a fist against God. Or of twisting God's command or of missing God's mark. As a result, we are all in grave and eternal danger. God, who is pure and holy and light, he hates the darkness and distortion and stain of sin. The wages of sin is death, physical death, and the second death, which is separation from God for all eternity. And even if we deny the fact of this, and it is a fact, we cannot deny the feeling of this. We deny the fact of sin all the time. The month that ended on Friday is an indication of this. The saddest part of the month of June in our culture is not that we call what, a good what God calls evil. It's not that we call righteous what God calls unrighteous. It's that we take such pride in doing so, which is a tragic posture, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Yet even though we continue to arrogantly and dangerously deny the fact of sin, we cannot consistently deny the feeling of sin. And I want to explain it this way. For the last 14 years, I've watched four little humans grow up in my home. And right now, Meredith and I are watching our four-year-old go through what all our kids have gone through and what all your kids have gone through. We've watched them go through the saddest and hardest parts of being a parent. 
And I would submit to you that what that is, is the moment that your kid personally experiences guilt and shame over sin for the very first times. Doesn't that just break your heart? They did something in secret, and they lied to try and cover it up. They lashed out in anger with their body, and somebody got hurt. Then they tried to make it out as though it was the hurt person's fault. They stole something they wanted so badly and were eventually found with it. And when that sin is brought out into the open, which God, who is truth and light and His grace and mercy does, when that sin is brought out into the open, oh, the tears, the red faces, the denial, the anger, the guilt, the shame. We don't change much in this regard when we grow up, do we? You know the feeling, don't you? You might deny it to everyone outside of yourself, but you can't deny it on the inside. And even if the feeling of guilt and shame over sin has faded in the present, surely the memory of it can be recalled. And if you're not a Christian and that feeling of guilt and shame has faded, you are in greater danger than you realize. For it means your heart has become hardened and calloused making it more difficult to respond to the call of the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And so, friend, wake up. Don't run from the Spirit's work of convicting you of sin and convincing you of righteousness. He's holding up a mirror to show you who you truly are, which is a sinner. And at the same time, he will point you to Jesus to show you what you truly need, which is a Savior. And parents, though it is agonizing to watch or kids, or if you're a grandparent, grandkids go through this experience. Don't shy away from those moments. Lean in. With the Holy Spirit leading the way, these are golden opportunities to tell them about the gift of conviction. And yes, it is a gift. A gift that shows us just how much we need to be forgiven. A gift that we can teach them should drive them to Jesus that shows us our need of him. These are the moments to invite our little ones up into our laps and to look them in the eye and tell them, Mommy and Daddy know what that feels like too. Because we are sinners and we need Jesus also. Those are moments to sit down next to our older sons and daughters and remind them again that they are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Yes, beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God, but also, yes, inheritors of guilt and a sin nature. And then to lead them in prayer and going to God together for forgiving and transforming grace. That's what the menu item of the cup in this gospel meal communicates. You take it in your hand and you look and you taste as you drink. And you hear the words of Jesus as he initiates this gospel meal. This cup is communicating to us that because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, the guilt and the shame are taken away because the sin that we're ashamed and guilty of is forgiven for all who believe in Jesus. This is the wonder of the good news of the gospel. When we bury our sin, trying in all sorts of ways to cover it up, we'll be buried by guilt and shame and eventually the judgment we're heaping up on ourselves. But when we expose our sin, when we bring it out into the open and we say, God, you are right 
to call me a sinner? When we confess our sins to God and ask him to forgive us, we are set free by the forgiving grace of God in Christ. Jesus shed his blood that this would be so. His lifeblood for our lifeblood. When Jesus takes the cup in the same way that he takes the bread and he gives it to his disciples and he says, drink of it, all of you. He's assuring us that our sins have been forgiven as we trust him. As the bread represents his body sacrificed in our place, the cup represents his blood shed for our forgiveness. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of his sacrifice. Though they were like scarlet, we've been washed whiter than snow. What's whiter than snow that's freshly fallen? I don't know, but it sounds amazing. We're washed white as wool. What was the cause of the dread of judgment, of agony within, of wanting escape to escape from ourselves because of what we've done in the past? It's taken away. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, but blood has been shed, the precious blood of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. So, brother and sister, whenever we drink this cup, Jesus wants us to be reminded that the blood that flowed from his head and his hands and his back and his feet and his side cleanses all who trust him. And as a result, we are entered into a covenant relationship with God, guaranteed by the blood of the sacrifice of sacrifices. Throughout redemptive history, God has been working to establish his kingdom through covenant relationships with human beings. We learned about some of this in Genesis. We're going to learn some more about it in Exodus. It was a covenant with creation. It was a covenant with Noah. It was a covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant with Israel. It was a covenant with David. And then in the Old Testament, there was a promised new covenant. At every juncture, there was death and blood because at every juncture, there was sin. God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skin to cover the shame of their nakedness. Blood was spilled. Noah sacrificed animals that were a pleasing aroma to God. After the flood, blood was spilled. Abraham was instructed to cut animals in two as God cut a covenant with him and God himself passed through between the pieces to say, if anyone, if you break this covenant, Abraham, if I break this covenant, this is what will happen to me, but I will hold up both ends of the bargain. Blood was spilled. Moses sprinkled the blood with uh, the people with blood to ratify God's covenant with Israel, a relationship that was full of sacrifice. Blood was spilled. And now, finally, Sealed by Jesus' blood, the foreshadowing of those covenants and the fulfillment of the new covenant, it is complete. Now there is a new everlasting covenant. Now there's a new unbreakable relationship between God and his people, between God and the kingdom of priests he's preparing for himself. Jesus has signed on the dotted line with his own blood. Guaranteeing that by his death, all who would come to him would be set free from their sin to serve God. And the promise that God made that he would be God to us and that we would be his people would be fulfilled. From eternity past, he has set his affection on his people as a husband does his bride. 
Though she would be wooed away by a serpent into destructive rebellion, he would send one to crush the head of that ancient dragon in disguise. Though she would play the whore again and again in idolatry, he would ever remain faithful. Though she would be horribly fouled by the incompatible disease of sin, he would wash her clean. Though she would expose herself, he would clothe her. Though she would reject him, he would relentlessly pursue. As the song goes, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. His blood has sealed us to himself. That's what the menu item of the cup and the gospel meal communicates, brothers and sisters, and any who would come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. The only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Every time we drink this cup, Jesus wants us to rest in and relish the covenant relationship that he has secured for us by his blood. And in case we missed it, we're not pointed just to his past accomplishments. We're not pointed to the present nourishment that these incredible reminders are to our soul that this means of grace is as we eat and drink together, we're also pointed forward. When we take these two items on the menu of the gospel meal together, we realize that they actually do whet our appetite for what is to come. Eating the gospel meal fills us with the hope of Christ's atoning sacrifice, Eating this gospel meal fills us with the hope of Christ's covenant-securing blood. And eating this gospel meal fills us with the hope of Christ's coming. Whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we anticipate Jesus' return. And eating this gospel meal it fills us with the hope of Christ's coming. Think of it this way, boys and girls. Look up here for a sec. Right here. I'm going to just wait till you Yeah, look up here, look up here. Well, I want you to think of it this way. When was the last time you went to a restaurant to have something to eat? Think about that. I'm guessing you probably got a kid's menu. And maybe it was one of those kid's menu that you get to keep and it comes with crayons for you to color on or, you know, something like that. I'm also guessing that your favorite part of the whole meal wasn't the burger and fries or the pizza, or the grilled cheese, or the macaroni and cheese, or the chicken strips, or whatever it is that you probably ordered, something like that. That wasn't the best part, was it? The best part is what comes after the meal. The best part's dessert. Am I right, or am I right? How do I know that? Because you probably got full during dinner, and then somehow had enough room for an ice cream sundae at the end. Brothers and sisters, we could use some of that childlikeness when we come today and every day to the Lord's Supper. Because the best is yet to come. In a few moments, we're going to pass out these trays. We're going to eat bread together. We're going to drink from the cup together. And in a way, we should all be looking past what is being done here and now to what will come after because the best part is yet to come. Look at verse 29 to what Jesus says. I tell you... I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. A change is coming for the disciples. And Jesus is rather emphatic about this change. There's multiple ways to express a negative in the original language of the New Testament. Jesus, the, the words here are the stronger way to do so. I will not drink 
of this fruit of the vine. Jesus is going to his death. Jesus is going to rise from the grave. Jesus is going to ascend to the Father. He's told the disciples in the upper room where they had the meal, things are going to be different. But he promises the Spirit, and he also promises to return. And so every time the disciples would eat this gospel meal from now on, every time we eat this gospel meal from now on, These words should ring in our ears until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Every time we eat this gospel meal, every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. We proclaim the hope of his atoning sacrifice. We proclaim the hope of his covenant-securing blood. We proclaim the hope of his coming. And when he comes... After reigning until all his enemies are put under his feet, including that last enemy, death, he will deliver to his Father and to our Father the kingdom, and then will come the meal that all believers in Jesus should be longing for, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, the best is yet to come. In some way, in some form, The gospel meal we share in together now is one we will share in together with Jesus face to face. Yes, he is with us now by his spirit. Yes, he dwells in our hearts by faith. Yes, we are seated with him in the heavenly places, but one day we will see him. One day he will set a table. One day we will sit down at that table with him. One day we will be able to look him in the face. One day wine will flow, and we will all drink and be gladder than we ever have been before as we rejoice in what he has done for us to the glory of our triune God. Revelation 19, 6-9 says, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How do we receive that blessed invitation? By coming to Jesus in faith today. By trusting him now. By confessing our raised fist, our twisting of God's standard, our missing God's mark. By asking God to forgive our sins. By believing that Jesus gave himself up in our place and shed his blood to forgive and wash away our sins and bring us to God. There's nothing more in all the world that I would long for than for every single one of you to sit down at the wedding reception between Jesus, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. Will you be there? Can you say so with confidence? Will you be there? The blessing of being present for the marriage supper of the Lamb are unimaginable. For our experience then will be vastly different from our experience now. 
In many ways, we hobble to the gospel meal that we'll enjoy today. In some ways, like actually physically, some ways outwardly, some ways inwardly, some people it will be both. We've tripped and fallen due to the entanglements of sin since we last ate this gospel meal. We know the pain of that. We bring all sorts of suffering as we come to the Lord's table today. We're weak and wounded, sick and sore, as the song we're about to sing goes. But as we come to this table now, we come in anticipation of drinking the fruit of the vine new with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. The kingdom that God the Father, if I can put it this way, the kingdom that God the Father is absolutely tickled to give us. It's his good pleasure, Jesus says, to give us the kingdom. Fear not. And Jesus gave us a glimpse of what that kingdom would be like during his ministry. Jesus ministered to rich and poor, powerful and powerless, young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile. No one who trusts Jesus will miss out on the marriage supper of the Lamb because of sex or skin color or language or inequity or injustice. That's not what the Father's kingdom is like. Jesus calmed the raging sea and billowing winds during his earthly ministry. No one who trusts Jesus will miss out on the marriage supper of the Lamb due to the effects of the curse upon creation, for he will have set it free from the bondage of its groaning. Jesus healed the blind, the lame, the mute, the deaf, the bleeding during his earthly ministry. No one who trusts Jesus will miss out on the marriage supper of the Lamb for having to go to the ER because there will be no sickness. No one will have to worry about eating what is set before them because there won't be any dietary restrictions. Jesus raised the dead during his earthly ministry, and he raised himself. No one who trusts Jesus will miss the marriage supper of the Lamb for having to go to a funeral or the cemetery because death will be no more. Jesus cast out demons during his earthly ministry. No one who trusts Jesus will have to battle their way through spiritual opposition to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb because he has conquered and we will conquer through him. Soon the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. Nothing and no evil will ever trouble us again. Everyone that you sit down at the meal with will be trustworthy. You can let your kids run free if you want. Go ahead. No one will cause any harm or destroy on all God's holy mountain. Because that's what the Father's kingdom is like. Jesus, the one who frees us from the penalty of sin, who frees us from the power of sin, will one day free us entirely from the presence of sin, both in dwelling sin and the sufferings of others' sins against us. So blessed indeed are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will drink of the fruit of the vine with Jesus and the fullness of the Father's kingdom that he is most pleased to give us. And that, brothers and sisters, fills me with the greatest of hopes. That as we eat this meal, it's just an indication to us that the best is yet to come. That's what we anticipate. Now, as we eat and drink together, and I hope these reflections will help you see and savor all the more the table that is set before us. And that every time we come to this meal, you will prepare you will whet your appetite, you will review the menu and be assured in remembering Jesus' body on the cross and Jesus' blood shed, the blood of the covenant 
and the future hope that we have for us to come. We're going to sing another song before we eat and drink, which just is the invitation in word to come poor and needy, sick and sore. And as, uh, yeah, you can come on up. I'm just going to make some comments as we transition. As we come to the table, this part of our service is going to be for those who are Christians. And so if you're here with us and you're not a Christian, I urge you to take these moments to consider Christ, to come to Christ, to pray even where you are and receive Christ. We would love for you to believe and be baptized and join us at the table of the Lord the next time we do this in a month's time. If you are a Christian... And yet you know that there is sin that the Lord has brought to your attention by the Holy Spirit that you just don't care about and that you're not repentant of. Friend, this is a moment where God's kindness ought to lead you to repentance. But if you're not willing to do so, I would urge you not to eat lest you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And finally, considering that we are going to sit down together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If there's a relationship within the body of Christ that as far as it depends on you is broken, I would urge you to go and mend that, to discern the body and realize that we do this as one. We don't want to make a mockery of the oneness that we have in Christ. And so please take that seriously and take steps immediately to remedy that situation as far as it depends upon you. Again, lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Otherwise, brother, sister, come. We'll do the liturgy in a moment after we sing. But if you're a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you know your need and you're coming to him in humility and repentance and faith, then come and see what God has done for you in Christ and savor it. Let's think that through as we sing.